Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm very glad you're with us today. WDET's book club is back for a third year, where we're going to spend the summer delving into a book and talking with experts and with you about what it means in the context of our world today. You can tune into the discussions about this year's pick, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, right here on the program and online in our Facebook group called WDET Book Club. There are more than 500 people now uh, who are part of that Facebook group, and there are a lot of really interesting conversations going on there. A lot of you have already started reading Ellison's novel, which was published by Random House in 1952 and won the National Book Award for Fiction the following year. It is considered one of the most formative works of the 20th century, and it's notable for Ellison's surreal approach to storytelling and for the book's frank discussions about race and identity and racial brutality in American society. Ellison's probing of identity, power, and inequality has never felt more relevant than it does now. Today, we're going to talk with someone who thinks a lot about the era in which Ellison wrote, about public policy, and about movements of black progress, and what the white responses are to those movements. Carol Anderson is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University and the author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide. Professor Anderson, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Thank you. So let's start by defining terms, so to speak. White rage. Uh, Let's talk about that term and what you mean by that term in the in the title of your book. And what struck me, um, and so let me give us some background on how I came to that, mm-hmm. was I'm watching the television when uh, Ferguson, Missouri is on fire um, after Michael Brown's murder. And the pundits were all talking about, look at all of that black rage. Mm -hmm. Look at black people burning up where they live. Who burns up where they live? Look at that black rage. And I I lived in Missouri, and I'm shaking my head, no, and I'm going, no, that's white rage. And I went, ooh. (laughs) Because what we are so focused in on the flames that we miss the kindling. Mm. We miss the policies that drive people out into the streets the kinds of policies that systematically undermine African-American citizenship rights and undermine the advancement that African-Americans have had toward their citizenship rights. That's white rage. It's quiet. It's subtle. It's bureaucratic. It's legalistic. It's happening in our legislatures. It's happening in our governor's mansions. It's happening in our school board meetings, in our zoning commission meetings. But those policies systematically undermine black advancement. Mm. That's white rage. So, so it's a really interesting term to think about right now because of mm. some of the things that we see happening in American cities, including Detroit, uh, these massive, massive protests against systemic racism mm. and police brutality. And I, I, the way that I think that 
the, the way that that term, I guess, pops into my mind in, in this context is the response by some who say, well, look at the violence that's happening that's harming black people, right? That there's been violence at some of these, some of these uh, protests that has, uh, that has resulted in injury or, or death to, to, to black people. And people say, well, why aren't you as upset about black-on-black crime and black-on-black <laughs> violence as you are about these other things? And my answer, my answer to people who've asked that has been to say, where do you think black people have learned to devalue black life? In other words, where does this violence that you see, whether it's perpetrated by white police officers or by African-Americans themselves, where do you think the genesis of that comes from? It comes from the devaluation of black life that sits at the center of the founding of this country. And so whoever the perpetrator might be, whoever the purveyor of violence might be, that person is re- reflecting, as you say, white rage. That person is reflecting white supremacy. That person is reflecting the idea that black life does not have the same value as other life. And, and I have another response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, one, the, the protests are about state violence yes. against human beings. Not about individual violence, but state-sponsored violence. And, and the shift to, well, what about black-on-black crime is a way to, it's a shell game where they move the eye off of state-sponsored violence into individual violence. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that we don't talk about white-on-white crime. Right. But just as the majority of African Americans are killed by black people, the majority of whites are killed by white people. Mm-hmm. Both are above 80%. Right? So 80% of the, of the homicides of whites happen by whites. Right. So what we're having there when we talk about black-on-black crime is not even a concern about that, but about a way to pathologize black people. Mm. There is something wrong with black people. That's the same thing that I saw with the, you know, who burns up where they live. Mm. The, The narrative of black pathology is essential in the way of it to craft policies, be it policies dealing with education, be it policies dealing with the criminal justice system or policies dealing with housing. The, the, the narrative of black pathology undermine, under, undergirds all of that. Mm. Um, and so that's what I think of when I, when I hear, and, and the third piece, also goes to an issue of anti-blackness, which is the myth that black people don't grieve, don't care. Yes, yes. When 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 their babies are shot, and and that goes back to the slave days when they would rip babies out of the arms of mothers on the auction block because you know they don't care about the kids anyway. Yeah, yeah. So. All of these pathologies, 
are then we, that 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 emanate from that period we see in the policies and in the narratives to 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 justify the continuing work to undermine black citizenship mm. so even when we're talking about the right to vote it becomes well, you know, black people are criminals, and so they're going to steal elections. We have to protect our democracy from these black folks who will steal elections. Yeah. The narrative of black pathology is powerful. Yeah. So, so in your book, you write about various inflection points of white rage in American history, and one of them is the Great Migration, which is a time period mm. that Ellison speaks to some yeah. an invisible man. Can you talk more about the black, the backlash to black Americans' movement north to cities like Detroit in the 20th mm. century? Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things to understand migration is that you have push-pull factors. And the push factor was the, the lynching, the violence, the lack of education, the lack of civil rights. Um, that was happening in the South, a, a level of precarity and vulnerability that that was pushing black people out. The pull factor was uh, the rise of industrial jobs in the North and the kind of sense that um, one black man talked about, we're going to be able to breathe freer. Mm. But up north, one of the things, as you know, what happened in Detroit was that there was an area in Detroit called the Bottoms, Black Bottom. Black Bottom, yes. And, mm-hmm, and that, was, that was walled off, for, basically, for black folk. Well, with the Great Migration, about 10 times more, more African Americans were moving into that segregated neighborhood. And it was a neighborhood um, in the 1920s where about, what, 25% or so of the homes did not have indoor plumbing. And with the, the sense of supply and demand, you know, was walling black folks in, but they, could, they had to pay more for their dilapidated housing mm-hmm. simply because there were more of them needing housing and could not move into those other areas in Detroit when they tried to move. And I, you know, and I tell the story of Dr. Ossie and sweet, yes. um, whew, the, the, the violence, the, the neighborhood associations coming to protect their neighborhoods from an invasion. Um, as they put it, um, to to push black people back into black bottoms. Um, you saw, so you got massive residential segregation. You got uh, the, and you've got a, a system where, and that's why the Ossian Sweet story just so spoke to me, mm. because you saw not only the police, um, backing the mobs, but you had the newspapers telling the story of these, these poor victimized whites mm. who were having to deal with these black people. And, you know, and, and this is Dr. Ossian Sweet, who is moving into a white working class neighborhood. 
it, 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 and you have a justice system trying this man and his family for murder when they were protecting their home from a mob that was screaming for bloody murder. Hmm. So when you write about uh, the Great Migration, when you write about Detroit, uh, as you said, you, you are inspired to address what's going on here by Black Bottom um, and by Ossian Sweet. Uh, you also write about the Michigan Supreme Court case Parmalee versus Morris and the Klan presence in Detroit. I would love to hear you talk more about those things as well. Yes, and um, the the Klan presence was one of the things. So you had the mayor, and he was a liberal mayor. He was um, elected by a coalition of African Americans and whites who were doing their best to keep the Klan out of power. One of the things to remember about this moment is in 1915, um, D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation, Mm -hmm. hit big, um, and it was screened in the White House. And President Woodrow Wilson said this is history written with lightning. But what it did was it celebrated the KKK. And this is the this so this period of the Great Migration is also the period of the second rise of the Klan, and the Klan moved out of the South and into the North, and had a major presence. And so you have this ongoing political battle to try to keep the Klan um, at bay because there was a fear of the, getting the Klan's hands on, on power and what it could do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and I'm, you know, I've been dealing with so many court cases right now. <laughs> the uh, Parmalee decision. Help me with that one. And I, as soon as you say it, I can get it. Uh, Parmalee versus Morris, uh, the Michigan yes. Supreme Court. Yes, and um, that was the one... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, this is uh, restricting restrict, restrictive covenants. Restrictive uh, covenants. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and and it basically said that you know restrictive covenants are fine, and restrictive covenants are where when you are selling your home, there is there's language in there that whites can only sell to whites, mm-hmm. and that this sale will be backed by the government. And and so what this does, it's a way to keep our neighborhoods white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, 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 and it's backed again by the force of law. And again, this is part of what, when I talk about white rage and the, the kind of quiet, subtle, corrosive power of these legal decisions, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. So you have somebody who is doing um, everything that they're supposed to do. And that's also one of the things I wanted to bring out in White Rage, is that we often hear these tales of, if only black folk would. Hmm. If only they would value education. If only they would work hard. Hmm. 
if only they weren't thugs, if only they weren't, wouldn't do drugs, if only they would keep their property up. You know, we all hear these things. And I document how African-Americans in the vast majority do all of those things and they are punished for it. Mm. Mm. And that's what we also have to understand about white rage is that it punishes black excellence, black aspirations and black resilience. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this wonderful conversation with Carol Anderson, the author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide. And we want to hear from you. In what ways do you think white backlash has influenced American politics? Have you seen instances of white backlash in your own community? Is there a particular point in history that comes to mind when you think about white backlash against black progress. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work them into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Carol Anderson, the author of White Rage. The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide. We're talking about her book, the themes that are contained in that book, and we're talking about how they relate to themes in our WDET book club pick this summer, (laughs) Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Uh, As always, we want to have you be part of the conversation here. Uh, Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Talk to us about where you see white backlash to black progress in your community, in your city, uh, in our state or our nation. Uh, And also tell us uh, what you think about uh, the ways in which this influences American politics and culture. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you in as well. Let's let's go to Daryl in Coldwater. Daryl. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. So someone once put it to me this way. They put it in my heart this way. They said, I can explain to you why the only thing Barack Obama and other people who have been successful even beneath that level have, have caused white Americans to say these people are divisive. We didn't have to do anything but show up successful. We didn't have to yield a gun. We didn't have to uh, seek violent rhetoric. All we had to do was wear a suit and a tie and some penny overs and show up, and we turn out to be divisive. And here's why. Because if you went home one day and your German shepherd or poodle stood up on its hind legs, spoke to you in plain English, and said, I don't want to be a pet anymore, 
I don't want to pull your sled. I don't want to. I I don't want you to milk me for milk. I don't want to do anything that's a beast of burden style thing. In fact, I'm exactly the same species as you are. Mm. I want to get a job. I want to get an education. Maybe I might marry your daughter. Not necessarily, but I'm an equal person. I'm not some strange animal. And we didn't have the gunpowder like they did or like China did. China's seen as a violent place. Uh, Native Americans are seen as those pesky redskins, those fighting vicious people. But we weren't even seen as people. Mm -hmm. It is as if they went home one day, opened their front door, and the pet or the beast of burden that they brought here as 20-some-odd Negroes Mm. actually spoke English and spoke it better than they did and decided it did not want to be a beast anymore, but it was a human. They never got over it. And I don't know until we face that reality if they ever will get over it. Mm. That's the problem. We were never thought of as really human. Daryl, I really appreciate uh, your call and that perspective on things. It's a it's a very dark vision, uh, I think, for the future of this of this country. Um, and, and I think that's where I would love to hear uh, Professor Anderson talk about it. If, as Daryl says, uh, this is this is fundamentally about not being able to see black people as human, what is the solution to America's very difficult uh, uh, attentions and and strife over racism and systemic inequality? Is there is there a chance to change that notion? as Daryl suggested. Yes, there is. And, it, and, and it's going to take some long, hard work. And this, I think this is part of what we're seeing in this moment that we're in right now. Um, whites are realizing that the, the lives that they're, they're leading have led to such incredible vulnerability So when folks are saying, and let me back up and and do this better, (laughs) the vulnerability of the coronavirus Mm -hmm. and how badly that was mismanaged led to an economic crisis that has created hours-long lines to food banks and 40 million-plus unemployed vulnerability. Then seeing the state-sponsored violence raining down on black folk that then eddies out to whites, what we're seeing in Portland, what we saw in Buffalo, where the police just pushed down a white man, um, 75-year-old white man, and cracked his head on, 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 the, on the sidewalk. That sense that something is wrong, the narratives that have, passed, have been passed off as history but are actually myths are causing a, a reevaluation, a reconsideration. Uh, 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 when you look at the New York Times bestseller list, you're seeing a number of books on there dealing with issues of racism, anti-blackness, and it's how do we dismantle anti-blackness in the United States? Mm-hmm. And that's the work that is being done now. And it requires that whites have the conversation with whites. That that particular point, I think, is 
really important. This idea that this problem is among and about white America, as opposed to a problem that exists only between white America and black America. I think that's one of the most difficult concepts for us to get our minds around, that that this is about white Americans and the way in which they react to African-Americans and African-American progress and the very idea of what it means to be black. And it is their problem and issue to solve on their own as much as it is with black people. Right. And, you know, and so part of the reason why we're here, you know, and I lay this out in, in white rage is that Donald Trump is the white rage response to Barack Obama. It is that he is, when, when Obama, you think about it, Trump made his political mark with birtherism. This attempt to delegitimize President Obama, mm-hmm. to, to other him, to foreign him, um, and, and, and then we get Mexicans are rapists and criminals. When we have the, the election in 2016, with a lot of voter suppression going on, which is also a response to the election of Barack Obama, these voter suppression laws, whites were the only racial or ethnic group, the racial group, that voted in the majority for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He had no skills. What he brought was white supremacy. And we are living through the result, the consequences of that decision. And I think that that is also what is causing this incredible and important reflective moment in America about how we got here. Because the only way you can understand how we got here the only way you can make sense of following Barack Obama with Donald Trump is to understand the power of white rage and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That the policies such as voter suppression laws that reduced black voter turnout in 2016 by 7% so that someone who's only qualification was white supremacy could be ensconced in the White House. So, so uh, we, we have another question that I think is is somewhat related to what we're talking about here. Professor Liette Gidlow is uh, a professor of history yes. here at Wayne State University. She's listening to the program and has been tweeting a bit about it. Uh, she's got a question for you. She says, white rage is a response to black advancement, as we've been talking about. She says, how were African-Americans advancing in the late 1940s when Ellison was writing Invisible Man? And why is black advancement perceived by whites as so, as so threatening? Let's talk first about the 1940s when Ellison mm-hmm. is, is writing this, this book about, about white backlash and, and lots of other themes of systemic racism. So coming out of the Second World War, so 1945, 
one thing is that black veterans came out of that war, a war fought for the four freedoms, a war fought for democracy, a war fought against fascism and Nazis. They came out of that war and they're like, we're not going back. We're going forward. This is why you see a wave of lynchings in 1946 against black veterans. But the, the, uh, grassroots mobilizing and organizing had led to President Truman in 1947 creating the uh, Presidential Commission on Civil Rights. Um, and they issued a report called To Secure These Rights. And, and Southern Democrats are looking at them and go, whoa, 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 what is this? And then you had um, Truman's Department of Justice issuing amicus curiae brief in the, oh, I hate it when I'm blank like this. It was the big uh, restrictive covenants case coming out of St. Louis. I don't have it either. <laughs> okay. uh, but it starts with an S. Um, <laughs> and, but there was the, so here you have the, the U.S. Department of Justice backing a lawsuit um, uh, and a, a U.S. Supreme Court case saying that restrictive covenants violate the Constitution. Wow. Mm. And, the, and, and remember, you also had in 47 Truman providing the keynote address at the NAACP uh, National Convention. So all of these things are just moving. You see this advancement. You see this refusal to back down. You see the push for a Fair Employment Practices Committee. Um, by the time we get to the 48th presidential election, um, you get the, uh, the uh, Hubert Humphrey stands up mm -hmm. and he says, it is time we got out of the shadow of states' rights and walked into the sunshine of human rights. The Southern Democrats broke off from the walked, stormed out of the Left. Democratic National yes. Convention, right? And you get the Dixiecrats. And so this is the, 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 the bullion base, the turmoil, the churn that is happening here. Um, this kind of sense that, um, African-American civil rights, their basic rights, their citizenship rights are now gaining traction in one of the big mainstream parties and that it's beginning to, to change the dialogue, the narrative, the opportunities. And the backlash was intense with this. Part of that backlash was McCarthyism. And the way that it identified civil rights as being communistic and therefore a threat, a national security threat to the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, again, Leah Gidlow, thanks very much for uh, listening, of course, and for uh, your really provocative question there. Let's Great go question. to uh, Derek in Detroit. Derek, welcome to the show. Hi, hi, both of you. I, I think uh, you both are wonderful uh, human beings, and I'm so very glad to be uh, um, voicing my, my question to you guys. Oh, thank you. Um, but quickly, I just want to ask. I've been I've been kind of listening to several uh, talk radio shows, and I watch a lot of progressive 
um, programs uh, such as uh, free speech TV, et cetera, et cetera. But I've been hearing lately this term called white fragility. I'm just wondering if you could address that, Dr. Anderson. Yeah, great question, Derek. <laughs> uh, white fragility is another phrase, as Derek yeah. points out, that we hear a lot. To distinguish that from yeah. the white rage you're talking about. Right. And so and that's Robin D'Angelo's book. It is. And yes. And so when she's dealing with white fragility, that she's laying that out, it is the way that whites um, feel threatened, um, feel um, that their world is being asked a, a question about racism or being interrogated on it or or having to confront it or or having to deal in a system that is more equal becomes this very almost um, psychologically disassociative moment for them. And they begin to, to, to break and, and to fight back in really harmful, destructive ways. So, but why fragility? for me deals more with the kind of individual responses and what I'm dealing with in white rage are more of the systemic structural racism issues. So that's that's how I see the difference there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and at the same time, those two different dynamics are so related and intertwined, it seems, mm-hmm. that it's impossible really to, to consider one without thinking about how the other has an effect on it. Right. And so, you know, you think about the ways that politicians, for instance, uh, be it a George Wallace or Richard Nixon in the 68 campaign, you know, how do you deal with the advancement of the civil rights movement? Well, you talk about all of this, the crime ridden urban cities and how it is a threat to good, honest, hardworking Americans. And that language of good, honest, hardworking Americans is coded white. Mm. And so you have politicians preying on those fears and then creating policies and structures to allay those fears. Um, so it is the way that you see, for instance, um, after the Brown decision, um, that said separate but equal cannot stand. It's unconstitutional. And, and so we are going to integrate these schools. Right. Woo. <laughs> and the response was you had this fear of, you know, Eisenhower's talking about, well, didn't know the real thing, President Eisenhower, the real thing is you just don't want our, our, our sweet little girls having to sit next to some big Negro in class. Mm-hmm. That's almost a direct quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and that fear of what happens when African-Americans are in an educational setting. It's like, well, the quality of our schools will go down. That kind of automatic assumption of black pathology. And we've got to protect our schools the same way that Ossie and Sweet's neighbors thought that they had to protect their neighborhood from having a doctor move in. Hmm. So those kinds of fears then help buoy um, the, the policies that keep undermining not just African-Americans, but undermining 
America itself. I, I think about the war on drugs. The war on drugs really was a, a malevolent way, way to play on the fear of crime mm-hmm. and to target African Americans because African Americans actually do drugs the least of any racial or ethnic group in the United States, but we're locked up the most. Mm-hmm. But with those felony convictions, then it systematically denies um, those who have been incarcerated, um, many of them, their voting rights in, in, in several states permanently. And it allows the kind of discrimination that the Civil Rights Act um, was supposed to be able to, to prevent when saying, you know, black people can't live here, black people can't go to school here. Having a felony conviction allows for discrimination. It becomes it becomes a proxy for the yes. racial classification that was used yes. before. Sure. Yes. 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 And so, um, uh, uh, author Jonathan Simon, a law professor out of Berkeley, he talks about governing through crime um, by the use of 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 conjuring up this image of cities gone wild and being tough on crime. Um, to prey on the fears of whites about security and their safety, mm-hmm. that it allows this this building up of this huge police and carceral state to provide safety. So the they they intertwine um, with me with white rage. I'm focusing in on those structural pieces. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the Great question. Uh, let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome to the program. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on with you two good humans. <laughs> Listen, for those of us who know, the, the notion that whites are more human than African Americans is really quite laughable. But I want to ask the, uh, your, your guests, uh, how is white supremacy hurting this country? Because, you know, with this corona thing, we, I mean, I resent what's going on. You know, my, my folks, we, we, we've dated our history back to the 1820s. Donald Trump, people got here in 1885, and he talked about our hero. How, how is this, uh, this white supremacy hurting this country? Hmm. Uh, it's a great question, Tim, and it's a great question to, to, to sort of wind up our, our conversation. This is not just about African-Americans and the effect Mm -mm. of Mm -mm. racism on us. It is about the effect of racism on our entire country and our entire collective progress. Yes. Um, And that's one of the things I I lay out in that last chapter on the epilogue, Mm -hmm. Imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, Imagine what this nation would have been like if it had honored the the rights of the four million freed people after the Civil War. Um, And the fact that we didn't so skewed so much in terms of democracy, in terms of our policies, in terms of our international standing, um, in terms of the kinds of resources that we use. So, for instance, the war on drugs. The U.S. has spent about a trillion dollars, that's with a T, on the war on drugs to lock up most those who do drugs the least. 
imagine if we had used that trillion to make sure the schools were accessible to everybody, really good schools. Imagine if we had used that trillion for access to health care for everyone. Imagine if we had used that trillion to clean up the environment. The damage of white supremacy is what we're living through right now. So that one of the studies is really clear is that one of the 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 resistance to um, access to health care for everyone has been racism, white supremacy, the fear that African-Americans were going to get access to something they shouldn't have. Mm. Jonathan Metzl, um, who is a professor out of Vanderbilt, wrote Dying for Whiteness, and he tracks this beautifully. And this fear that because blacks might get it, then we've got to stop it from happening for anybody. And so here we are in the middle of the coronavirus and tens of millions of people who have lost their jobs have now lost their access to health insurance in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's the power of white supremacy. That's the destructive power of white supremacy. We dismantle white supremacy and anti-blackness. We're going to have an incredible nation. Wow. Carol Anderson, author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, and the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African-American Studies at Emory University. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we are going to look at how a new training center is helping to push the Michigan Regional Council of Carpenters into the future. And it is happening in the neighborhood where I was born here in Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today. <laughs> 